0: In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today as we always do and always should. We ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts to listen to the scriptures and hopefully the explanations that will bring us closer to you by understanding the details and the whys and the wherefores. So we ask your blessing on our efforts, not only today, but as we go forward in discussing the Gospel of Matthew. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today we're going to, well, first of all, is there any questions relating to last week's, uh, Uh, Lecture. Anyone have any burning questions that they just got to get answered? No one. Well, you mean that I I was that clear? (laughs) What's that?
1: Five or six, but I can't remember.
0: Five or six, but you can't remember. Okay. (laughs) Then they're done that, but can't remember.
1: Um, I just have a question because I've always wondered every time I read it in the Bible, and it was in our homework reading, why do we say that John the Baptist is
0: Elijah? Oh, all right. Well, let's, let us we'll get into that this morning. Okay. Um, good point. Today we're going to be discussing two main points, and that is, who is John the Baptist? Now, everybody has heard of John the Baptist, I'm sure. But do you really know what his role is in God's plan of salvation? Because there's more to it than kind of we can get out of the little snippets that you can see is spread throughout all of the Gospels. And to some degree, there's some comments in the Acts of the Apostles. But have you tried to put it all together? And that's what we're going to do, hopefully, this morning is to bring it together so you can see not only who this man was, and, but what his role was and why he's really important. And yet there is a statement made by Jesus himself in Matthew's gospel that kind of leaves everybody sort of hanging. Okay. So what I'd like to do is get right into... Who is John the Baptist by reading the paper that is part of your handouts for this morning? (coughs) I put this in writing because I think it's something that you're going to need to read a couple times before you really kind of grasp the whole content of who the Baptist really was and why he is in an important character in this entire plan of salvation okay. so with that we have all heard and know a little about John the Baptist, but do we really know who this man was and why he is important an important person not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old. Although not mentioned by name in the Old Testament, he is prophesied as one to come or to announce the arrival of the Anointed One or the Christ. I want to stop there, as I will every so often. We've heard the phrase the Anointed One and of course we all know Christ. I've had somebody ask me if that was Jesus' last name. I thought, oh man, surely you don't know the background. All right. Throughout the Old Testament, wherever the Messiah was considered, they didn't have any really firm idea of who the Messiah was in the Old Testament, but they knew that he was a deliverer and an important person, and of course, As time went on closer to the time of Christ, uh, the perception was that he was going to be a magnificent ruler who was going to come and get rid of the Romans so that the Jewish people would again be a sovereign nation as they were under David and be their own ruler. Well, that wasn't in the cards, so to speak. That wasn't part of God's plan. All right. But the idea of the ruler, or the Messiah, I should say, and if you translate that back into the Hebrew or the Aramaic, it comes out the anointed one of God. All right, so that is what this special person was going to be in the eyes of the people of the Old Testament time. The anointed one of God. That was as close as they could get to whomever they, this person was going to be that was going to deliver them primarily from the Romans. All right, they were thinking of an earthly ruler, somebody who was going to really sweep the Romans out of there. Well, that never happened, of course, as we know. But translating that back, as I said, from the Aramaic or the Hebrew through the Greek and then into the Latin and then into English, it is where we get the word Christ. Now, if you take it from the Aramaic or the Hebrew, it's the anointed one. Going into the Greek, it's Christos. Going into the Latin, it is almost the same, Christo. But then into English, it is Christ. All right. Does that kind of give you some background there? All right. But John the Baptist was often thought of, as we all know, because it says so right in in the gospel here, that by many people, they thought he might be the Messiah or the Christ. Okay. <laughs> so let us see who this man is and why he's mentioned so often. As you have seen in the uh, writings of, the, or the list of um, Bible references that I gave you last week, He's mentioned several times in all four Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles. But I want to bring this all together so we get a better idea of who this person is. And speaking of being mentioned, John the Baptist is the only person, aside from Jesus, that is mentioned in all four Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. There is no other individual uh, human individual that is mentioned in all four plus X. Right. You're including
1: Peter in that?
0: Yes. Peter is not mentioned in all four Gospels. Mm-hmm. To begin, we know the circumstances of his miraculous birth. That is Elizabeth and Zachariah were an elderly couple who had longed for children or a male heir, but did not get it until the time came, and they were part of God's plan just as well. (coughs) Elizabeth was advanced in age, that is beyond the usual childbearing age, and nevertheless... As part of God's plan of salvation, she was chosen to give birth to a special person to fulfill a need in God's plan. The circumstances and timing of this birth, that is of John the Baptist, were not sort of coincidental, but part of a much larger plan, as we shall later see. To make sure that the word did get around, the father of this child was struck moot. For the nine-month period, in order to emphasize the importance of this event, John's name was determined by the demand of the angel. In other words, John's name was dictated by God himself and transmitted by the angel who made the announcement to Zechariah the father. This is, in itself, an important sign and becomes a focal point of the name of the child and the, and the regaining of the Father's speech, as we know. Let me just digress for a moment. Throughout the Old Testament, and in the early part of the New Testament, several people's names were changed, beginning with Abraham and Sarah. Originally, his name was Abram, A-B-R-A-M, and her name was Sarai. They were changed by God to Abraham and Sarah. We had Jacob, their grandson, Abraham and Sarah's grandson, Jacob. His name was Jacob, which is which is often used, but it was later changed to Israel. And that's where we get the country of Israel from, from the name of Jacob or the previous name. Anyways. And down through time, various names were changed from one to something else. And it was to signify the changing of a person's name was to signify that that person was to become an important partner or an important person in God's plan of salvation. Right? Peter's name was changed from Simon to Peter. Paul's name was changed from Saul To Paul. Jesus' name was dictated by the angel before he was born. Uh, You had several of those kinds of events to indicate a very important person in God's plan of salvation. And as I've called uh, them before in other uh, sessions of this class, these were partners in a way to help implement this plan in some very special way. So that is the reason behind this unusual event of uh, um, Zechariah being uh, struck moot for the nine-month period uh, that Elizabeth was carrying John the Baptist. And then when they... Uh, go to name him at the presentation ceremony. Uh, that's when his voice was returned, which again was a way of broadcasting this as a very important event in the life of John the Baptist and his mother and father. Okay. So we know very little about John's background uh, between the naming event and his adult life. But there are indicators that lead us to believe that perhaps John became a member of the Essenes, a very conservative sect within the Jewish Sanhedrin or temple rulers, and the same people who were ultimately responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. We often hear about Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sanhedrin was, in a way, similar to our Congress. Let's set the politics aside, but uh, in formation, uh, they were a ruling group. Now, there were more than just the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There was about six different political parties within the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two primary, just like our Democrats and Republicans. But there were others, such as the Essenes, the the Zealots, um, the Indumeans, and one or two others. Okay. They were very small, or a very small minority, or very small part of the Sanhedrin, had very little control. But the Essenes were ultra-conservative. And they did not like a lot of the things that were going on in the Sanhedrin, particularly by the Pharisees who were getting away from the teachings of Moses and were taking on a great deal of the uh, political and cultural um, changes that were coming about because of the Hellenistics, that is, the Greek culture invading all of that area. So the Essenes withdrew from Jerusalem and established their um, territory or their center uh, at Masada on the coast of the Dead Sea. And uh, we have a, a feeling that John the Baptist was a part of this group ultra-conservative, uh, but gradually even God was pulling him away from that and directing him to begin a activity which we call baptism for the recognition of personal sin. Now, the baptism that was distributed or conducted by John was not Up to the same level as baptism in the Catholic Church is today. But it was a personal act of uh, contrition, you might say, that was not sanctioned by the Pharisees or Sadducees. It was not an official part of the Greek culture, but it became a personal uh, act of outward contrition for sins committed. So baptism existed long before Christ. Long before, we don't know exactly how long, but we do know that it was uh, a personal act that people would demonstrate in some way or form, but it was not in the same blessing. But John the Baptist realized that this was something missing from the true Jewish culture and beliefs at that time. And therefore he made it sort of the center point of his ministry. We also know that he took a Nazarite vow which required him to abstain from strong drink of any kind and not to shave or trim his hair. He apparently lived a lonely life in the desert Remember, his parents were advanced in age and most likely deceased when John began to preach. Also, we don't know how long John was preaching and baptizing before Jesus came into the scene, but the culture of that time was such that a person younger than 30 years of age was not considered mature or educated enough to be taken seriously. And since John was just six months older than Jesus, his preaching and baptizing activity was most likely not more than a year or two at most. Now, how do we know that he was six months older than Jesus? Yeah. That's right. Mary and Elizabeth were pregnant at the same time. Uh, the appearance of the angel to Elizabeth and Zechariah was approximately six months because the angel told Mary of that, and that's how we know that. How John got started into baptizing, we don't really know, but baptizing was not something new to the Jews of that time. It was a personal outward or public act of contrition for sins committed and part of the Essenes ritual. John saw this as fulfilling a need that was missing from the traditional Jewish uh, practices, although it was not sanctioned by the temple priest. He must have been inspired to use this ritual as the keystone to his ministry. It drew a great deal of attention, even to the point of gaining King Herod's attention and curiosity. Another piece of the narrative portrait is a Jewish legend regarding the return of Elijah now we know that Elijah uh, was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot it says so in uh, the second book of Kings chapter 2 verse 11 and that is, is the last time anyone saw of him now it's kind of interesting if you go back and read the story of Elijah and his protege, Elisha, two men who were very active in promoting uh, a a strong following of the teachings of Moses as opposed to what was going on uh, throughout the second book of Kings. However, a legend, not history, not reality that we can bank on, But a legend developed over the years and became part of Jewish beliefs and folklore that Elijah would have to return in order to die and then go to heaven. The Orthodox Jewish people still believe this and in their annual Seder service at Passover they set a special place at table hoping that Elijah will return in their midst and favor them. Anyone that's been to a very orthodox Seder service will be aware of this. A a special place will be set at the table and a chair will be set there, slightly turned for expecting Elijah or hoping that Elijah will return to them at that time and favor them. Uh, It's kind of interesting... But again, it is folklore, it is not history, it is not officially part of the Jewish service. But, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's something something like when you set out uh, cookies and milk for Santa Claus. Uh However, Jesus dispels this by saying that John the Baptist fulfills this legend. He does so in Matthew chapter 11, verse 13 and 14. There is no indication that John ever considered himself as the spirit of Elijah. But he did fulfill much of the prophecies about Elijah. Now, that's a little bit of the background. The above information doesn't tell us much about the role of John the Baptist and its importance in God's plan of salvation. But if you step back and look at all of the references, you will see that John is a partner in this plan, and that his role is as a transitional partner, or, as some like to think it, he is often considered to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. This is so because he brings much or some of the Old Testament culture that is preaching and the repentance and the act of baptism itself into the new era, and he points to Jesus as the Son of God, the first person in the New Testament to do so. And that's important. He is the first person in the New Testament writings that points to Jesus as the Son of God. In addition, John's action of baptizing Jesus initiates Jesus' ministry, wherein his divinity is again taken up to support his, that is, Jesus' preaching and the miracles. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. In both Luke and John's Gospel, the Baptist points to Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Son of God, and then fades away. In other words, you don't hear too much about him afterwards, leaving Jesus to pick up where John leaves off. Further, the importance of the Father's voice announcing that Jesus is God's son, cannot be overlooked. It affirms what John was preaching and saying about Jesus, and it implies a directive to all mankind to listen to him, that is, Jesus, as does the same instruction from the Father in the transfiguration event later in Matthew chapter 17. And what could be clearer? But what are we to get out of this today? First of all, the church interprets this as the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the end, you might say, of John the Baptist's role. The reason that Jesus came to earth in the first place, and that is to save mankind by being the divine Sacrifice offered to the Father for the forgiveness of sin of all mankind. It also designates the point in Jesus' early life where he takes up his divinity in order to have the authority to say and do the things that will come. And then by his presence and the participation in this act, Jesus elevates this act, and that is his baptism, to the level of a sacrament, making it the beginning of our entry into the new life of the church, that is the kingdom of God, that was anticipated by the Jews, but missed because of their misguided want of an earthly king and deliverer. I hope that gives you a better idea of who this John the Baptist was. Dick? Uh,
1: one question. It appears from the Bible, from the New Testament, that John did not cease baptizing at that point, but kept it for a while until he was arrested and then murdered.
0: Very little, yes. Yes, very little time, but yes. He continued on because he had no other instruction. No other knowledge. All right. Any other questions? Yes, Susan? Submersion, submersion, yes, yes. And that is coming back into the Catholic Church as well. Total submersion. Yes, yes, but it was always in the Jordan River. Yeah, not some little fountain in, in a chapel or, or temple. Yes. Yes, Howard?
1: No, so, uh, what I think is glossed over is uh, in Luke uh, 1 uh, 15, where it says about John the Baptist that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Yes. Any kind of the Holy Spirit takes you, just like the apostles of Pentecost, they do great things.
0: Yes. And from the time of his birth until his death, he did great things. That's right. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, it was from the point of his birth, yes, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Very important uh, point. That means that, in essence, God has chosen you right, or or chosen the individual right from the very beginning of that. And if it happened at the time uh, of conception, in this case, within the womb of his mother Elizabeth, then John was dedicated immediately uh, to this uh, particular role in God's plan. Mary also was uh, designated as full of grace, right from the time of her conception. And that is an important way of looking at Mary's role also in God's plan. But she was dedicated, and because of that, um, that is the essence of why we looked at Mary as being the Immaculate Conception. She was dedicated for a very specific role in God's plan and was kept pure, uh, perfectly pure, right from that moment and never sinned. And some people, particularly Protestants, will question this and, you know, poo-poo it up because they don't believe it But it says so right there, and they just don't understand the essence of what that was, as Howard just pointed out. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, particularly right from conception, designates a a person that has never sinned or will never sin. There are so many other little things in, in here also that I think we need to get out of. Uh, one of the things is that this is sort of the ending of John's role in God's plan because he was imprisoned by Herod shortly after and then eventually uh, beheaded, unfortunately, uh, by Herod out of kind of a stupid little uh, blunder. Um, it is also designating as the beginning of Jesus' role in God's plan. Now, Jesus being God, you often wondered, well, why did he have to be baptized? That's a question that I often have. Remember, Jesus was a human being as well. He came to earth to represent all humanity, for the purpose of offering his perfect body, blood, soul, and divinity to God in a sacrifice that would satisfy uh, the redemption of the sins of all mankind. So he, being a human being, as well as God, went through this act of baptism, not so much because he had to, but because he wanted to offer it to us as our entry into the new kingdom of God. It is not for any other reason. This is the establishment of the new kingdom of God at the time of Jesus' baptism. And he wanted us to see that eventually. And the church interprets that as our entry into the kingdom when we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit using water, again, as a symbol of purification. So, aside from John the Baptist's role, we have a number of other little incidents or important points from this event of the baptism of Jesus to really ponder over and think about, because it adds to our faith. This is the end of John the Baptist's role. Uh, it is the end of the preaching of the old. Excuse me. <coughs> the Old Testament. Excuse me. <laughs> Get me some water. It is the end of the Old Testament and the preaching of the Old Testament. Uh, Anybody have a question or a problem on John the Baptist being recognized in an an unofficial way as being the last of the Old Testament prophets? Can you see that? Can you understand why he was called that? Because he brought forth Solely what he knew, which was from the Old Testament. He was not around long enough uh, to absorb the teachings of Christ. He was imprisoned and then beheaded. Yes, Howard?
1: Can you just say he, he satisfied the Old Covenant? He,
0: he was yes, he satisfied the preaching of the Old Covenant, uh, yes. Jesus satisfied the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. All right. Very important point. And then Jesus picks up from that, practically saying and preaching, or starting out to preach the same things. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus being the essence of the kingdom of God. And people who then joined him and eventually were baptized then entered into the new kingdom of God. And that is what it says at the bottom of the listing that I gave you last week. Uh, Jesus quotes, let me read it because it's, it's beautiful language, I think, here. (coughs) as they were going off that is the people who were following John I'm reading from Matthew chapter 11 thank you as they were going off Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John what did you go out to the desert to see a reed swayed by the wind then what did you go out to see? Someone dressed in flying clothing? Those who wear flying clothing are in royal palaces. And, of course, that's in reference to the, uh, the, the rags that John the Baptist lived in, animal hides. Then why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, and this is again from the Isaiah, Behold, I am sending my messenger messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. So this was all planned by God the Father, that there would be a messenger who would be the herald of good news, referring to Jesus Christ and pointing him out as the Lamb of God and the Son of God. But Jesus then goes on to say, Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist, but yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And that has stymied and stumbled a lot of people over a number of years. In other words, he's praising John to the hill. But that is because he was the last of the Old Testament prophets and he will be credited for that, for fulfilling his role in God's plan. But he's saying that anyone who is born into the new kingdom of God is greater than John because we have had the ability to receive Christ himself into our heart and soul and spirit, okay? Through baptism and through the Holy Eucharist, which then elevates a person who sincerely does that to be above anyone who, even though they were of great importance, didn't get into or have the ability uh, to partake of the kingdom of God that was initiated by Christ's uh, life, death, and resurrection. Do you understand that? It's, that is what makes John the Baptist's role in God's plan so important. And the baptism of Jesus Christ at the same time by John is also important because it elevates the whole idea of baptism as an entry into the new kingdom of God. By Jesus' participation in that act, he raises that act to the level of a sacrament Can you think of any other occasion when he did the same thing? What about the marriage feast at Cana? Where he not only is present, but he participates in helping the individuals being married there by supplying the wine. It was the culture at that time that the groom always supplied the wine for the wedding feast. In this case, they ran out of wine, and so Jesus supplies that, but in a great abundance. The abundance, you know, the five stone jars, uh, which would hold 30 or 40 gallon each, uh, was far more than they would need. Remember, Wedding ceremonies went on or celebrations went on for a week in those days. By Jesus' participation in that and supplying an overabundance of wine, which was an indication of his overabundance of forgiveness for all of the sins of people who uh, made sincere contrition And that elevates that event to the sacrament of matrimony. That's why the idea of commitment in the sacrament by a husband and wife or a man and woman is so important. Because it is a sacrament. It is something that God himself is involved in. (laughs) Excuse me. Any questions? No questions? You mean you all just understand it real clearly? Well, I hope so. Yes, Bob? I'm a little confused about this shared line here. Okay.
1: First, and at about the same time.
0: No, 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 no. Jesus and John probably died a couple of years apart.
1: Well, that's a short time. Uh, these books that are credited to Matthew and Luke lived another forty or fifty years later. Yes. Uh, so they must—they must, be, they must they present at the time of the death of either of both? Jesus or John? Or was this all by evidence
0: that hearsay and how we these stories that they use to write books that we can read? All of the above. Of the above. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Bob's point is that the events and the writing of those events were quite a far apart. But that was as the was normally something that was not unusual. Uh, We had the same thing in the Old Testament, but let me kind of stick to the Gospels here. The point is that the writing down of these events in what we call Matthew's Gospel took place 40, sometimes 50 years later. But they were handed down verbally, not only from Matthew, but to others. So the person who actually wrote Matthew's gospel certainly was probably not Matthew the Apostle. But it was somebody who took most of what Matthew taught and then embellished it. But remember, the first gospel to be written, as far as we know, was Mark. It is the shortest. It does not talk about the infancy or the early life of Christ whatsoever. Uh, And... It was deemed to be primarily the, the sayings of Jesus and leaves out a great deal of the explanations or narrative details, All right. But Matthew, or the person that we call Matthew, the follower of Matthew, was a very well-educated person. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector who could have had virtually anybody, um, and certainly not well-educated in the understanding of education in those days. Uh, But Matthew was apparently very uh, insistent on sticking to the Jewish understanding of God's fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And therefore, Matthew's gospel is a very Jewish structured document. You have, and I think we covered a little bit of this last week, but it's all right to go over it again. Conversely, you have Luke's gospel. Luke was a Greek-speaking Jew, knew the Jewish faith very well, but probably didn't speak Hebrew. Uh, He wanted to write the same kinds of things, so he also took Mark's gospel and embellished it, but he did it for the purpose of convincing the Jewish, uh, or the converts, the uh, Jewish people who spoke only Greek, or those people who were uh, not Jews but came into Christianity uh, speaking Greek and understanding it most of those people would not have understood some of the traditional things that Matthew put in puts into his gospel remember Matthew mentions at the end of all of his there's five major divisions in the book of Matthew and at Each one of those, the ending is almost identical in wording that these events were written here to indicate the fulfillment of certain things out of the Old Testament. So Matthew had one primary objective in his writing, Luke had another objective in his writing, of convincing the Greek-speaking people of the same things. Mark's gospel had probably no objective except in preserving the teachings and the sayings of Jesus itself. Now, you go to John's gospel, John has an entirely different objective. He's taking the idea that Jesus was God, coming to earth to save mankind. Whereas the other three were this man who grew up to be God or was God all along, but not obvious, at least in the early days. So you had these two converging types of Gospels. It covers virtually all aspects of Jesus' life in some form or another. And the church was left to interpret them in order to develop Christianity out of these gospels. And that is why we often refer to the church in itself as an apostolic church, meaning it came from the writings of the apostles. Now, only two of those four were actually apostles in the traditional sense. That is, Matthew and John. Mark and Luke were not apostles, but obviously they learned from, because we know that both Mark and Luke followed the apostles quite closely and were very instrumental in helping them in many ways. Any other questions? Uh, have I made the importance of John the Baptist uh, a little more understandable in your eyes?
1: Yeah. Sort of a, a little bit. You gave us some references. Yes. I believe that the one from Malachi is wrong. Oh. And I don't understand the one from Numbers. Could
0: you cover those two? All right, well, let's go back to them. Malachi, give, give me the reference. Uh,
1: Malachi 3 I don't see John in
0: 3 1 at all. All right, Malachi, it says, Lo, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. All right. This is essentially God speaking. Hmm? Malachi chapter three, verse one.
1: I have, and I said, "Hear you, leaders of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not your duty to know what is right? You who hate what is good and love evil."
0: You got Malachi.
1: Oh, I got I got Micah. I'm sorry. That explains
0: it. Very clearly, you yeah. okay. know. Okay.
1: I showed you I tried anyway. I, numbers 6-1,
0: maybe. All right, what's the other one?
1: Number 6-1, the third reference.
0: Six. Malachi? No, Numbers. Oh, Numbers. Numbers 6-1-5. All right, okay, just a moment. Number.
1: 6-1-5.
0: Chapter 6 Verse one to five. No, numbers.
1: Numbers. <laughs>
0: Did you say six?
1: Mm.
0: I don't have the chapter
1: six. Verse one to five. Okay.
0: The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when a man or a woman solemnly takes the, oh, the Nazarite vow, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He may neither drink wine, vinegar, or, or other vinegar, well, want to? Uh, or any kind of grape juice, nor eat either fresh or dried grapes, as long as he is a Nazarite, he shall not eat anything of the produce. Well this is the whole idea of John the Baptist living on uh, you know whatever he could find out in the desert. And taking the Nazarite law uh, indicates that he was uh, part of the Essenes. That's why I mentioned that there were indicators that he was probably part of the Essenes because that was part of their ritual uh, where they would not shave or cut their hair and then they would take certain vows of not, not drinking anything uh, in the way of wine. Or.
1: So this is not really a forecast of for John, but it's how John lived. Yes. And yeah. the, angel, when the angel was talking to um, John's father. He said that he shall never drink uh,
0: uh, wine and- right. Yes. Yeah. And of course, living in the desert, there weren't any bars out there to give in. You know.
1: That cactus juice gets
0: pretty strong. Oh, yeah, that's true. Okay, but it has to ferment first. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, Vito? That's right. Yeah. You can't have two people preaching almost the same thing you know and then people would go back and forth which one you know yeah. no it's it's a way of closing up uh, one role and opening up another yeah but it's important i think for us to see that to get the connection that's one thing that is rather difficult to do if you don't get into some of the nitty-gritty details and find out why John the Baptist, I think, as we can see from all of this, was a very important person and fulfilled his role. Uh, Now, that opens up uh, sort of the door to our next subject, and that is Jesus spending time in the desert before he begins to actually activate his role in God's plan of salvation even though he was always God, remember, he set aside that role while he was growing up. A lot of people think that at the time he was baptized in uh, the temple, i uh, am not baptized, but he was teaching in the temple around the age of 13, which would have been his bar mitzvah time, uh, that... He did indicate to his mother when she asked why he uh, went off and left her for three days or whatever, and he says, did you not know I had to be about my father's business? We cannot take that too seriously because any firstborn male child could say legitimately the same thing if they were qualified. Now, we know that Mary and Joseph knew that Jesus was very special. They may not have totally understood the entire role until after it all happened, but nevertheless, they knew right from the beginning that he was special. So therefore, they must have encouraged him to study the scriptures as much as they, he could in order to get some idea of why he was special. And therefore, he was very well-groomed for his age when he was confronted or when he started asking uh, the temple priests and rulers uh, questions at the age of 12 or 13. And that impressed him. But we can't say that he knew he was God at that time because, remember, he set that aside Because he wanted to be uh, a human being only. Yes, Howard.
1: That kind of confuses me because uh, we say the word made flesh, and if the word made flesh, he knew that as a child. He had to.
0: Well, that's true. He knew as, but he again set all of that divinity aside, Uh, and you know we know that from. Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. Uh, And we've all heard that poem many times. And I say poem because most uh, writers of Scripture believe that it was something that was added uh, from another source. (laughs) Excuse me. But getting into the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert in preparation uh, for carrying out his role in God's plan, first of all, let's talk about the idea of 40 days. Throughout the Old Testament scripture and in the early days of the New Testament. The use of the word 40 is a convenience and it is not exact. You cannot say that it was 40 days because of this date as a beginning and that date as the ending. People did not keep records and calendars for small personal events of that kind of thing. So when they went to write the histories down, They had no way of knowing the exact number of days, weeks, months, years, or whatever. And therefore, they would use the term 40 to indicate a long but imprecise period of time. Does that make sense? So, when you see the word 40, you have to be uh, able to visualize that this could have been 28, 30, 42, 50, whatever. Yes, Julie? All right. But the whole idea of the 40 days uh, retreat was probably not exactly uh, the way it is described in the Bible, but nevertheless, the meaning, the intent, the purpose was pretty much accurate, and that is before Jesus began his public ministry, he spent a great deal of time, again, because he has now taken up his divinity, the divinity and the humanity have come together again, and he is starting out on a new uh, major leg of his role and that is to preach and teach uh, the kingdom of God and the repentance needed to get there. Uh. (laughs) During that time, he is, after not eating or drinking uh, for whatever length of time that was, uh, his humanity would have been suffering, obviously. And so the devil tempts him to uh, prove that he is God by turning some stones into bread. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy that not by bread alone does man live. In other words, it takes a great deal more than just bread uh, to be a human person and sustain humanity. Then the devil uh, tempts him again by trying to show him uh, the great wonders of the world and so forth and so on. And he is then again uh, confronted with a, a temptation, and Jesus again uh, applies another quotation from Deuteronomy against personal glory. And then, again, the third time. Remember, in biblical writings, not always in historical events, but in biblical writings, things come in threes, sevens, and twelves. Those are the three numbers in Jewish culture that were considered as sacred numbers. And so that's why you have a a number of things uh, in groups of three or seven or twelve. Whether there were more or less, we don't know, but always grouping them in one of those uh, numbers adds a little bit of authority and uh, well, sincerity and meaning in Jewish culture. Remember, the scriptures were not written for people 2,000 years later. They were written for the people of that time period. And the first century for the New Testament was a tumultuous century of so many different factions coming at people from all different eras. Uh, The Jewish people wanted their way. The Christians wanted their way. The Greeks wanted their way, and everything coming together uh, just made uh, life rather stressful, I'm sure, to say the least. But it's important to remember those. But what is the importance of this uh, for us today? What do we get out of the idea of Jesus spending time in preparation for his public ministry? Anyone have an idea? Yes? is the preparing for what was Yes, very much so. He was preparing to make sure that what he was about to do was part of the Father's plan of salvation. Yeah. And it was necessary for the Holy Spirit to join in, which of course they always did. There was only one God. Um, And wherever one person of the Trinity did or some say something, the other two were also there. I think I told you some time ago my sister called me one time from Michigan. She she always does when uh, she's got a a crazy question at you all. Know. Uh, she said, Some priest told told me today that the Father was on the cross with Jesus and I said, No, he wasn't. That was he Jesus alone. And the father said, No, the Holy Spirit and, and the Father were there also. So I said, Well, what's what's wrong with that? And she looked you know On the phone, she didn't look at me, but she looked at the phone probably and said, what's wrong with you? What she didn't understand was that there's only one God and they have to be totally in agreement. You can't have three different people within one God, all right? But it is the face of God that Jesus represented because he was human. He interacted with us. This was God interacting with us as a human being. If the Father appeared to any one of us today, he would look like Jesus. Because the Father has no face, the Father is a spirit. The same way with the Holy Spirit. When uh, you look at this diagram that I have given you, my favorite uh Handout It's in a circle to indicate the unity, the oneness. God is one. But our belief is that within one, there are three distinct persons. We have no other human way to describe that. Obviously, there must be some theological or spiritual way of describing that, but we don't know. So we have to say that there are three persons They each have their particular role in God's plan. The Father created all mankind and all of the things of earth to support mankind. He then created the Jewish faith in order to implement his plan of salvation through the Jewish people. There had to be a reception of a receptive people To accept Christianity, there had to be a basis uh, and a lot of things had to be in existence and ready before Christ could come along and fulfill his role, which was primarily the sacrifice of his divine body and blood for the salvation and the satisfaction of sins of all mankind. But in the process of doing that, he had to bring in a great deal of the meaning of the Old Testament, but change it in a way that would blend into his role and his teachings and his eventual death and resurrection. And then at that point in time, or the first Pentecost, he turns it over to the Holy Spirit to take the benefits of what the Father did and what the Son did and apply that through mankind to bring us all back to heaven, to the Father at the end of time, at the end of our death and at the end of time. And that is the way the plan works. It is either God's way or the highway to damnation. There's no alternative. Okay? Um, And a lot of people don't get that. You have to really understand the importance of the role of the Trinity. I got a little off beat, but I think and I hope that that helps a little bit in better understanding uh, why many of things are as they are is because (coughs) (coughs) so many people say, well, isn't you know, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? He doesn't. He doesn't send anybody to hell. We send ourselves there by not observing and fulfilling the teachings of Christ that have been laid out for us. This is the way it is, folks. You either go by the way I'm teaching or you go your own way, but that can only lead to damnation. So, you know, your choice is there. Not much of a choice in the long run, but again, people do not seem to understand Or to care. And then when they get up to the pearly gates, and God said, well, I don't know you. You never let me in. You never did anything to develop a relationship. Therefore, you're not coming in. That would be hell in itself. That's what hell is. Not so much the pitchfork and the guy with, you know, with the uh, union suit on. But... The idea of knowing that you will never be able to see the face of God again. That is, you know, we've often talked about this in the past, but I have to remind people of it over and over because it's important. The fire that is often talked about throughout Scripture is not a fire of, you know, wood burning. It is a fire of anxiety, of not knowing you will never see the face of God again. And that in itself is fire within. Any questions? So the role of Christ in this retreat is to begin his ministry. What we should get out of that is an understanding that when we start anything of importance, any major decisions of our life, our careers, our backgrounds, our raising our children, whatever, we should spend time in prayer. That doesn't mean that you you know, have to spend hours and hours on your knees. Sometimes it only takes... A few minutes to say a very sincere prayer. But it is important that you bring God into the picture and ask for His guidance and direction in making serious choices. How many of you actually do that? Anyone? Anyone? It's important. Yes, good. I'm glad to see some of you. But please, try to understand that when you start making serious plans of any kind, that you spend time in prayer. Now, do we know of another occasion when Jesus did this? Agni in the garden, Yes. That was the whole idea of that scene, where after the Last Supper, they go out and spend time in the Garden of Eden. Not Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane. It would have been a little difficult time to go back in the Eden. Anyways, Gethsemane, which is just a a short distance across the Kidron Valley. Uh, And they've been there many times before. But this night was special. It was Passover evening. They had just uh, celebrated the Passover meal. Uh, history and uh, Old Testament tradition said that the sacrificial lamb had to be slaughtered on the night of Passover. Remember, Passover actually goes for eight days. You have a beginning and an ending. All right. Uh, why it isn't seven days, I'm not quite sure. But nevertheless, uh, Jesus had to spend some time in preparing for his death. Now, he knew all along, that is from the baptism time up until now, that he was going to suffer and die. But being human, that took a lot of extra energy, courage, wisdom, understanding, and whatever. And therefore, by spending time in prayer to the point where he actually bled tears of blood because it was so intense. The whole idea of offering his body and blood in such a horrible way. But it had a purpose. It had a goal. And his mission was to fulfill that goal. The offering of his own body and blood, divine body and blood to the Father. And the resurrection was an indication of the Father's acceptance of that offering. So we should look at that as well. Uh, many Protestants feel that the resurrection was more important than the crucifixion uh, because it was a little cleaner, neater, nicer, etc. Uh-huh. First of all, you can't you, you can't separate them. The three events—the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ—is one event. If any of those three parts are missing it negates the benefit of the other two but the resurrection was an indication of the acceptance of the sacrifice that God made on behalf of all mankind but it is the sacrifice which was the epitome of that particular event again we should make it a point to spend time in prayer before making serious decisions because they could affect our whole life. Any questions? I hope now that you're getting something out of this kind of teaching rather than going through the chapter and verse uh, method that we've done in the past because it's important to understand the whys and wherefores of these major events that are described in the New Testament, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, but from time to time we will bring in similar events or corresponding events in other Gospels uh, in order to round out a full understanding. Well, again, any questions? All right. Next week we're going to take up the subject again of Jesus preparing for his ministry and the development or the choosing of the apostles and why he chose such a motley crew, you might say, of men. Uh, rather than intelligent, uh, well-dressed, well-educated people. Let's leave that for next week. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for helping us through this session, helping me through this session. Uh, (laughs) We ask your blessing on helping us to further understand The details of some of these major events described in Matthew's Gospel. And as we get towards the Sermon on the Mount two weeks from tonight, there'll be, or today, there'll be a number of events that we will need to understand in greater detail. So help us, we beg of you, as we go forward, to open our minds and our hearts to understand your role, your plan of salvation for us. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.